Hello, and welcome to Conversations About Arts, Humanities, and Health, a podcast series all about meaningful dialogue and connections between humanities and medicine. To mark the end of our first season of Conversations, we're putting out this extra bonus episode, which offers some reflections looking back on the series so far. What you'll hear is a conversation with the two co-organisers of this project, Professor Ian Sabro and Dr. Dieter de Klerk, as well as one of our previous guests, Dr. Lauren Barron. Dieter, Ian and Lauren will offer some different perspectives for how the first season went. This conversation was originally recorded as part of the 2021 Mayo Clinic Humanities and Medicine Symposium, titled Engaging Across Disciplines Towards a Practice of Transdisciplinarity. We're very grateful to the conference team at the Mayo Clinic for kindly allowing us to share this conversation as an episode of our podcast. That's everything from me for now. I'll hand over to Dieter, Ian and Lauren. We'll just first start by introducing ourselves and our contribution to the conversation series. So I'm Dieter de Klerk. I'm a lecturer in film and media at the University of Kent, and I am one of the co-organizers of the conversation series. And I'm Ian Sabra. I'm a consultant in respiratory medicine and an academic with an interest in medical humanities uh, based in Sheffield and also co-organizer of the series. And my name's Lauren Barron. I'm a family practitioner in Waco, Texas, and I'm a clinical professor and the director of the medical humanities program at Baylor University. So what we've done is we've taken this as an opportunity to kind of reflect on what did we set out to do. And we all met in February 2020 at a conference at Kent, and it felt almost like there was something in the air, lots of people meeting each other, you know, health professionals, uh, researchers from across the humanities, and artists as well. And we wanted to continue those conversations. Um, And I've always kind of wondered what it was about that atmosphere or about those conversations which were happening in February 2020 that, that we thought were worthwhile continuing. And I think that I would say that, um, I mean, my background is one where I've been trying to explore what the medical humanities can bring to medicine. Um, And that in itself is addressing a really important tension because medical humanities is of its own and on its own right, an independent, important and valuable academic discipline. Um, And I support its existence entirely as an academic discipline, but equally as somebody who spent his life doing patient care, For me, I want to understand how medical humanities can interact in a way that's positive for healthcare uh, to change the lives of clinicians and the people that they care for and to understand systems and behaviours better. And as part of doing that, I recognise that the United States has a long tradition of teaching medical humanities. And through Winston Churchill Fellowship, I travelled in the States for a few weeks in 2019, visiting centres of academic excellence that uh, can deliver that research in medical humanities and use it in clinical care and clinical teaching. And um, met uh, uh, Dr. Barron and Lauren, of course, is uh, one of the founders of one of the oldest medical humanities um, undergraduate courses in the States. And many of her students go on to study medicine and I was very keen to understand her background. And she and I have continued many conversations exploring this very complicated area, which is what is medical humanities? How do you use it or can you use it? Or how does it sit alongside clinical medicine? 
uh, and your conference data enabled us to start those conversations with other practitioners and to begin to explore the identity and the nature and the practical uses of medical humanities alongside its intrinsic values and academic discipline. Well, it was a treat to get to travel to Canterbury and uh, especially, um, I'm especially appreciating it now that I haven't been able to travel at all, <laughs> um, but to be able to, um, you know, the, the, the study and devotion to medicine, it's a, it's a lifelong, it's, it's a lifelong vocation. And it's impossible, it's impossible for us to know everything about medicine. It's just impossible. And so to have insights from artists, from scholars, from other practitioners, um, from, uh, from the other side of the world, to have these uh, sort of windows and um, see different facets of medicine or see it portrayed differently or see how people are using um, art uh, for patient education or graphic medicine to develop materials for patient education. I mean, it was, it was just fascinating. It was fascinating and it was fascinating in a way that usual uh, con clinical continuing med medical education is not always fascinating. Um, and opening up new windows or new uh, doorways into uh entire rooms or houses in medicine that you didn't even know were there. Um, it was just a tremendous opportunity. I think that's the, the magic of interdisciplinarity, um, which, is, uh, which is hard to bottle and hard to continue, but that's what I think you've done with your podcast. I indeed think that this is what happened when we originally met at a conference set for, for some reason, it brought together people from very different disciplinary and professional backgrounds who were all interested in meeting in this interdisciplinary space to think about arts um, and health and, and humanities. And that's indeed what we've been, been trying to continue. And actually what happened a lot at the conference as well is that you had the official conference space where you had the papers and the responses, but we also um, had a, a space where we moved for lunches and dinners and there was lots of conversation happening in those spaces and there was something about the, the conversational nature or, or what, what you get out of dialogue and conversations that we wanted to explore further to to you know try and figure out our way into this interdisciplinary space and I think a lot has been about finding our way because medical humanities it's a big term, it's a big field, it means different things for, for different people. Um, and one way of looking at medical humanities is how it can sit inside medicine or, or you know, not just be on the outside. And this is something I think that we've tried to explore. I think that's right. I think one thing that we've highlighted throughout the podcast and why they're all worth listening to as well is we highlight the complexities and the tensions of this space. Um, so um, it feels to me that each single person who has spoken of their research, um, either from a clinical or a non-clinical perspective, um, has wrestled with the cross-disciplinary engagement and the challenges it presents, ranging from discussions around how you create a meaningful 
career in a discipline that doesn't have a single methodology or disciplinary home. Uh, through to how you um, create meaningful interactions across worlds that are often very far apart. Um, because if you are a university academic, it may be very difficult to get to know a clinician. And if you're a clinician, it can be very difficult to get to know a university academic to look at how to bridge those gaps and divides. Um, and indeed, none of us know how to define medical humanities with any great accuracy. And you can argue whether it is health humanities or medical humanities and exactly what the discipline uh, includes. But nonetheless, we all share this deep sense that, that the interaction is profoundly valuable. And I think every speaker in the series demonstrated how they have found a way to make that interaction meaningful, both academically and personally, and also to impact and create change in the world, which I think is always very exciting. Lauren, is there anything you feel like Reflecting on, I remember that when we did the conference uh, in the UK, some people said that it wasn't that common to to meet really, you know, where, where humanities and medicine met in the same space. It was sometimes more common that um, humanities offered a critical perspective on medicine from the outside, which is, of course, very, very valuable. Like you can imagine sort of, independently holding it uh, to account. And I think it was Ian as well who, who suggested that perhaps in the United States, there is a, a stronger tradition of the, exactly that interdisciplinary space where medicine and humanities meet. And, and humanities, I, I imagine, is on the inside of medicine. And of course, with your, with your innovative program at Baylor, you've been at the forefront of that. Well, I would say that... Um... You know, the grass is always greener. <laughs> and I would say that um, I'm not quite sure that's the case, although it may have appeared to Ian that way when he came to visit. I think there's some attempts being made, but I still think it's, it's very uncommon for humanity scholars and clinicians to be in the same place. Now, those people might have arranged themselves when, you know, when Ian came to visit, but I think, I think it's still, it's still very, very novel. Um, and that's one of the reasons that I have enjoyed the Mayo Clinic conferences so much, <laughs> because that's another amazing place where um, clinicians and humanity scholars and practitioners from all across uh, healthcare meet together. So, um, I think there are some centers where it's happening, but I would still say for the vast majority of, of, of medical or health humanity scholars and the vast, vast majority of clinicians, it's still, it's still rare, fairly novel. It's still fairly unusual. which makes it all the more important and delightful to have these sorts of experiences together. So and show Dita, that it can want... be done. It can actually be done. <laughs> so Dita, do you want to say a bit about the actual podcasts themselves and how we set them up and, uh, the, and, 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 the, and, and the structure that we, we ultimately ended up with? Yeah. So, I mean, we started off with the idea in, you know, 
there is a we have a radio station here, BBC Four in the UK, and they do the live scientific where they bring in a guest uh, and the guest talks about their scientific career. And we wanted to do something like that as well, where we would bring in a central guest each week and try and have a conversation or, you know, with the researcher, but also with the person behind the research and allow for, you know, an exchange that you wouldn't normally be able to do in formalized academic settings. So what we ended up with is basically a podcast with a live audience. So we, we put um, uh, a link, a zoom link out, a zoom webinar link where people can attend the conversations that we're having with the guests. Of course, we meet in advance and we've set certain topics and then we see where the conversation flows and we try and bring in questions from the audience as, as best as we can. And then afterwards we, you know, David Brown at the University of Kent produces the podcasts for us and, and then they go live. And I think what we've ended up is um, what we've called a semi-formal space in these podcasts and maybe Ian you want to have a, a, a reflection on what that semi-formal space feels like so I think it's I agree I think it's been really valuable I mean I remember being quite scared when we did the first one or two about just getting the structure right and how we were going to do it and the real need to prepare very thoroughly in terms of understanding the people that we were speaking with and their backgrounds and preparing well the ground that we were going to cover, which again, I'll, I'll ask Lauren to speak about in a moment because she's been on both the route uh, as an interviewer and also as a, as a, as a guest. It, it feels to me that the, that the formality of the podcast, we were not just conversing, but the conversation had a structure and a name, which was to explore the complexity of the interdisciplinary space and also to understand how people feel that their work contributes to or involves medicine and what what it means to involve medicine within medical humanities so there's a very clear agenda which helped frame the questions um, is it important that medical humanities speaks to medicine how does it speak to medicine does medicine listen um, can medicine speak back to medical humanities where does Though, where do those questions sit alongside the independent and valuable disciplinary work that, that it does on its own out with the conversing with clinicians and patients? And by being very formal uh, in, in that sense, we knew what we wanted to ask. And we also knew that this was a problematic area. Um, and our speakers were able to show both how the personal and academic experience gave them insight into trying to address that. And at the same time, because it wasn't scripted, I think it gives that really live sense of exploring ideas together that make it especially meaningful because you still find yourself moving along tangents that you weren't necessarily expecting to follow. Um, and um, I think that, that that dual nature in a funny way captures an essence of what medical humanities actually is. It's a, it's a rigorous discipline, but one where we still don't understand its boundaries and structures. Um, and in a funny way, the podcast resembles that because it was we tried to do a valuable interview, but one where we still don't fully understand its boundaries and structures ourselves. 
Um, and again, uh, so if I hand over to Lauren in terms of how she feels it, how, what it was like to both be invited and prepared and then to participate and, and how it would feel from her point of view. Well, first of all, it was a, it was an honor to be invited. It was exciting to be invited as a, as a guest. Um, and I would say that the, um, the thoughtful um, questions, um, Dieter, that you posed and Ian, that you posed um, in writing and emailing back and forth to prepare uh, was incredibly helpful. And then um, to, I'm often in the position of try, of explaining medical humanities and I have a certain way that I explain it. Um, but to have the um, sort of the, the, the unique way that the two of you ask questions caused me to um, have to adjust that and to think more um, deeply and with more clarity about how to explain it in a way that I wouldn't have had to do had we not written about it and then had a meeting beforehand to have a pre-conversation, I think you called it, um, to, or pre-chat um, to talk about the podcast um, helped achieve a clarity and also a, a, a fresher way for me to explain myself. And so that was incredibly useful and helpful and um, had some guests, including I'm going to go ahead and disclose my own spouse who listened to the podcast who uh, also was not bored with what I had to say, having heard it said over and over and over again. He heard some things in a fresh, new, and different way. And I think that's, um, that's a, a tribute to the process that you've created. So as a guest, I felt very uh, welcomed and prepared and comfortable. And also that I had something fresh and interesting to contribute. Um, as a host, oh, my hat's off to both of you because that is challenging. It's so, it's very challenging. And um, I think the, the most important thing that came out of that experience for me was, um, was the challenge in the difference between what I would, what I would have wanted to know personally and professionally with what would be most helpful for a more general audience. So there was that experience. Um, also, I didn't have the advantage of having met these people personally before. So that was also very different because I didn't have the connection with them that I had with the two of you. Um, but mostly I would say I was just fascinated um, by listening to the other guests that you have. And the process that you had created made it easier for me as a guest host um, to step in. Whereas if you had not already pioneered that process, it would have been much more difficult. Okay. And, and I think for me as well, the thing of working with um, both of you, and, and in terms of the actual structure of most of the interviews, specifically with Dita, it's the fact that we clearly use different language and articulate our questions in different ways. And that for me remains one of the most interesting things in the medical humanities, the power of language to shape our understanding and to describe it. Because language doesn't just describe what we know, 
but the way that we use that language defines our identities and our social groups and it defines how we consider and run with knowledge and how we then explore the things that we think we know or don't and I'll hear Dieter frame something in a way that I would never have used language to describe and it will challenge me and give me new insights and sometimes I won't know what it means I mean I smile still that before I started working in the medical humanities field um, every now and again people would talk about agency and I'd have not a clue what they meant um, and words that are completely normal and common within the humanities are completely alien to medicine. And medicine, God bless it, has its own language that is absolutely opaque to anybody who's not um, spent six years at medical school. Uh, and so I think that that's been a very interesting thing for me. Again, this ongoing exploration of the complexities of two worlds that ought to be entirely entwined and yet rarely meet well enough. I'd like to jump in and say something about that language, Ian, um, in terms of interdisciplinarity and the challenge of having different languages, different nomenclatures, different ways, different ways of knowing. Um, and that that often seems like an insurmountable barrier uh, to some people that there are there's there's just such a a, um, a divide in terms of culture, in terms of language, in terms of custom between these different tribes that we have, you know, whether scholars or clinicians. And I want to say that I'm extremely impatient with that. And I think it has to do with the fact that as a clinician, my my obligation is to figure out ways to bridge that um, those languages to the patient in front of me, who's going to come uh, to this encounter with, I mean, they may come with the college education, they may not be able to read or write. And so, but it's, but it, it doesn't matter. It's my obligation as a physician in that room to translate. And so, that's why I'm impatient with us as clinicians, as scholars, as professionals about the, um, the in, I'm impatient about the impatience <laughs> that we have in making the effort to, to build those bridges. And I have a big concern about the word professionalism, um, which is a word I was, you know, weaned on, um, but I think that uh, professionalism should be about the people that we are serving in our profession, not about defending the boundaries of the profession itself. So I just wanted to add that in terms of interdisciplinarity. I think it's, I feel that it's my obligation as a clinician. And honestly, for my colleagues who are philosophers, who are, you know, historians, who are artists, who are um, literary scholars, um, all, all, all across film, theater, um, I think they have an obligation <laughs> to help translate what they do for someone like me, for, um, for actually a vast audience that they may not even realize they have. And that's certainly true in medical humanities of my um, colleagues that are scholars in the humanities, they have a tremendous, vast audience that they may not know they have in the form of, you know, all of those of us who are involved in the medical enterprise. 
Gosh, I think that's so important. I, I've become much more aware in, over the last many years of every time you hear a them and us situation. Um, and um, I, I teach my students and young doctors that I work with to, to watch for them and uses. Um, in the minute you say um, on a ward, the nurses did, then you've created a them and us, or there's a there's a difference. And again, I think that we run the risk of having too many thems and uses between these different disciplines of clinical, of the clinical world and um, the academic medical humanities world. When in reality, there's so much to be gained by um, being able to move away from those and enjoy the conversation. And of course, all of our participants in the series have shown that to be fair, that they've enjoyed that conversation, found ways across it. And I think indeed this language and finding an audience and finding ways across, I think, disciplinary and professional divides, which are real, I think is what we set out to, to do. We wanted to create a space and I think even like find a language to, to communicate with each other. Um, and I think this brings us also to like the pros and cons to the format that we've chosen to do that, which might be interesting for people who themselves are thinking about, you know, communication in this interdisciplinary space. So we, we've called it a, a semi-formal space because it is more formal than the conversations you would have at a conference, you know, and somebody might say something really valuable, but it just was at the conference and you have no way of going back to it. And it also has very status or legitimacy. So we try to present ourselves as a professional outfit. We, we've we got the backgrounds, which Lauren, you joked about in our pre-chat today, <laughs> which we put on. Um, and it, it lends it perhaps a certain kind of level of something official. You know, we But we also archive it. You know, we archive the conversations as podcasts. We write our summaries. So there is something to refer back to. You know, it, it's not lost in the ether forever. If we do bring up that something that is of value, it can be referred back to. So really what we've hoped that we have created or are creating is a resource for people who are interested in moving in this interdisciplinary space, who are finding their way like us. You might find it very useful for example, the concept of feeling like an imposter has come up time and again, and it's something that we've dealt with. And you always think about, I'm the only one that thinks like an imposter. The others, and this brings us back to what Ian thinks about us and them, you know, like Ian doesn't feel like an imposter. You know, why would he? It's me that feels like an imposter. But then and to hear from, from so many people in our um, series who have referred to that, I think it can be really useful and can be really useful, I think, to refer back to that. You know, this is something that we, we, we can talk about, that we can address, and that we can then also ultimately move beyond. And I think that's probably what these conversations are doing. And you know, we're bringing in questions from the audience. It's a podcast with a live audience. You know, If it was without a live audience, it'd definitely be easier to produce, I think. Um, and, but it, I think it, it would lack that input that people can have um, by, by asking a question which shifts it in a, in, a in a direction. But because it is to some extent a formal space as well, I am very aware of the power that I have as moderator 
to see which questions come through, which ones we have time to address. And that is something that I find challenging to negotiate because, you know, ideally you'd want to be able to take all the questions that come in as they come in, but they don't necessarily fit in the conversation that moment. And I think if you do take them all, ultimately what you end up with is a conference paper or the Q&A session of the conference paper, where it's just question to the guest, answer, question, answer. And you lose that real conversational element where people are, are building. So I think if, if people are thinking about doing something similar like this, I think that you know, there's pros and cons to, to the kind of podcast with a live audience format. Yes. I mean, I think we knew that we did not just want to create a different online conference. And it wasn't a series of prepared statements with prepared questions and answers. Um, I agree with you entirely that one thing that really emerged as one of the strongest themes is actually of a remarkable humility amongst scholars and practitioners and the frequency with which we all of us actually declared our own feelings of being an imposter in a space, which perhaps is because it's a very difficult space to own. But um, I think that, that was something that was common to absolutely everybody who was involved, that sense of humility and challenge and, uh, and, and, and feeling it like it was a hard space to own. Um, and I agree, I thought that trying to work out how to bring in people's questions was very hard. Um, so if the conversation had a unique and a specific flow and a question was submitted partway through that didn't seem to match that flow, you didn't want to ignore the person who had contributed a question. But on the other hand, there was a place maybe that we knew that we were going to from the preparation of the meeting um, and trying to weave in a, converse, a, a really valuable question, but one that might have moved the flow in a direction that we hadn't prepared for was a very, very difficult balance to get right. And I'm still not sure we've resolved that. Um, I'm not sure we've got that bit right. We, we've had feedback that suggests that many have loved the format, that one or two people felt that they would have wanted more opportunity to ask questions. But in the end, it is it can't be everything all the time. And maybe we need to try and do that differently in season two. Um, but in season one, that's certainly been a real learning point. And I think the live audience is, is vital because it's this sense of, Performing to a live audience really keeps you sharp in a way that's very different than recording something um, that that will later get very heavily edited. I'm happy to hear you say, Lauren, you found it stressful as well. I mean, the low, you know, the, I, we put the logo in the background, and I feel like oh, official. I feel like in a position of like a, a gatekeeper, and that's not just it. When we have the conversation, that's also when we're inviting people. Mm-hmm. You know, not necessarily everybody that we invite ha- has the, the capacity in the calendar to do it, which might mean that you know the, the series obviously tries to be as diverse and inclusive as it possibly can, but that doesn't always materialize itself and so these are really important questions that we are thinking about and we're we're trying to get it right but we're also just trying to do it and 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 just get on with it and i think living with the imperfections of 
of what we're doing and hoping that despite those imperfections, um, it still is a space where interesting and valuable things can happen. And I think I'd also add that we've also been very conscious of the importance of trying to make sure that our um, uh, that our interview that, that we interview people from a range of backgrounds, from different disciplines, from um, uh, with uh, ethnic diversity to showcase and demonstrate our commitment to equality, um, and uh, also that we demonstrate that expertise lies in um, you know, people from every background and um, each gender, and uh, that we try and make sure very strongly that we show that commitment. I think academia still remains far too much a bastion of white privilege. Um, and we're trying very hard um, to ensure appropriate representation and demonstrate that expertise lies across the, you know, across different ethnicities and races and across the genders and that that, that matters more than anything else. I think equality and justice has been a real theme that we try to address. I get very worried and conscious that I remain a male in his 50s um, from a white privileged background and um, we need to continue to push back against that being the only place that expertise can lie, which clearly, clearly it, it never has been or is. Yes, and I think it's something that I, I feel like we haven't yet been able to get fully right. Um, yeah. So should we, I mean, we move on to um, talk about um, what we felt that the um, series offers to different groups. I mean, Dita, do you want to talk about what you feel the series offers to scholars in the humanities? And then Lauren and I can reflect on what we feel the series offers to people who are either thinking about studying medicine or who are active practitioners. I think Lauren's comment about there is an audience of people who work in health who would, are interested in what humanities people have to say, if they say it in a way that is accessible, I think is just explosive. I mean, I've, um, I started university in 2006. So two years before the, the big crisis. And ever since, you know, there's always been a crisis in humanities. And it feels very existential. I think many colleagues across humanities disciplines might be worried, you know, whether their program is going to continue to exist. There seem to be political pressures, especially in the UK, that actively pit STEM and humanities and arts and the NHS against each other. And I think that the humanities are facing a challenge to, to their survival. But I deeply believe that they have enormous value to our lives because I think why I was interested in studying humanities is because I'm interested to, you know, what it is to be human in this world, in this universe, how to live our lives. And I feel like the arts offer us a tremendous resource to ask these questions. and I. I think in the conversations that I've had with you, Ian, with you, Lauren, and with our guests who work in health, is I think that from a, from a different angle, you're coming at these questions as well. You know, life, death, illness is exactly what you are facing 
in your day jobs. And, and it seems to me that there are lots of people working in health who turn to the humanities exactly for a kind of illumination about those big human topics. Um, and that's what I have learned. And I think there is a real opportunity here for humanities research to to engage with medicine. And I'm not quite sure if we've yet found the right language, Lauren. I think we need to get on, to, on that. Um, but I think if we, I think the series has shown me that there is that opportunity there. And I think that is actually very validating. And I think it, it really overthrows some easy and lazy oppositions that you you know that humanities agree are, are a waste of money that's sort of something that's in the air um you know obviously i don't think that's the case and i don't mean to say that humanities only has value insofar that it would be instrumental to helping out you know health professionals that's not the case at all i i do think it can have that instrumental relationship but only by virtue of doing what it does otherwise you know if you want to find out what can i do with narrative how can narrative guide me as a clinician well then you need some people who do who study narrative right you need people who know more about narrative and make that their focus and they want to just find out more about narrative because narrative is just important to humans and then you can go back to that resource and think about okay how can we apply that in certain practical contexts. So I don't think it's um, in just that the humanities must have um, instrumental value. They have value by themselves, but they can also have practical instrumental value. So that's what I've learned. And I really want to try and be part of the translation team, Lauren, if we can put it that way, to try and think about how we can create um, spaces like this, where we find, find the language to try and figure out, you know, how could we help out in what is really a joint project? You know, I, I, I want to say a couple of things about that, because I feel so strongly about this. I was once in a curriculum committee meeting um, where uh, a, a, a colleague and, and friend and someone I admire um, said something along the lines of, well, I feel like we're just adding medical in front of everything, you know, you know, history of medicine or, you know, philosophy and medicine. We're just adding that word to everything. And uh, so we had a conversation about that. And and my response is that you don't have a class in history. It's always the history of something. Right. You don't you don't have just a class in history, it's history of something. So the way I think about this is it's a gateway drug. It's a gateway drug into your discipline. So yes, there's sort of a hook for people who are interested in, you know, um, healthcare professions to, to, to offer class in the history of medicine. But if it's done well, it's a gateway into, you know, the discipline of history and, or, or it's a gateway, like you mentioned narrative, it's a gateway into um, you know, the study of literature that they might not have realized they had if it didn't have, and I'm worried about using this word, I'm getting ready to use a word. Uh, so I feel like I need to say a trigger warning, but uh, that, that, that it has relevance, right? That has relevance for um, the student who's taking it. So I think that's really important. And when I use the word audience, Dieter, I want to say that I want to 
attribute that to a woman named Ann Fadiman, who's a author who wrote The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down. And uh, she was brought to Baylor for a series there and she spoke and uh, she was wonderful. And, but one of the things she said, and it, this was about what is the purpose and the point of the humanities, why the humanities. And one of the things that she said was to create audiences. You know, we need audiences for film. We need audiences for theater. You know, we need we need readers, you know, for, for authors to sell their books. So and I know that sounds very instrumental, but I do think there's something to be said for helping to educate and create and cultivate audiences for the work that our colleagues in the humanities and the arts are doing. So I just wanted to jump in and and remember where I first heard that from Ann Fadiman. And I think that for me, one of the things that, um, and thank you, Lauren, for, for that. One of the things for me that, uh, that this series has really helped me with is my ongoing attempts to transform my own understanding of the world around me and to um, medical humanities drives change in myself and in my practice in ways that um, are really important in this podcast series contributes as does every conversation. So a lot of this for me has been framed around concepts of justice and equity and care and by learning the language that the humanities can bring around good philosophies of care and what is justice and what is injustice and the concepts of distributive and discriminatory injustice and of epistemic injustice um, and coupling that with narrative medicine and with the lessons taught to us by for example Esther Jones on the experience of racism in healthcare. Um, I've learned tools that have both shone lights in dark corners where I don't understand how deeply or I don't understand enough how deeply injustice can run in healthcare. Um, it's made me reach out to my communities to understand how to deliver better and more equitable care and give me the tools to reach out and say this is unjust because it's taught me where my own understandings are based too much on the just background of white privilege and education within within my culture and not understanding the worlds around me enough and hearing the stories of others in a fresh light and a fresh way and contributes to that ongoing deep sense of humility as I realise just how unfair the world is to so many and the needs to address that so powerfully. Um, and... Um, that I think has been really helpful and it also has moved me into thinking about justice for clinicians because although we are a privileged group in a very powerful position where it's also very stressed and a very demanding profession with incredibly high levels of burnout and understanding the nature of that and actually providing tools to address that and put words around it that describe that experience and that encourage people to speak their experience has been really powerful. And I think that this podcast has been part of that personal transformation for me, um, which still has a long way to go uh, to try and overcome um, wherever I can um, injustice in, in the professional world around me and the care delivered to the patients um, and to understand uh, the nature of that much more clearly. When, when I'm thinking about uh, this question uh, that we're discussing about what the series offers to, you know, medical practitioners or, you know, students of medicine, students of the healthcare professions and 
um, impact on clinical practice, one of the things that I keep flashing back to is how absolutely charmed I was by Alyssa Burghardt. And uh, I remember when I was reading her um, CV of sorts, um, there was a, a, a phrase I'll never forget. It says that she can only speak for herself, but she will sing and dance for anyone. And um, just the joy that she brought to her practice of, you know, pediatric anesthesia and the how much of herself she brought to her practice. Um, and, you know, the word joy was not something that was not a word I ever heard in medical school, never heard the word joy, <laughs> you know, never heard the word vulnerability, never heard, um, never heard. I don't think I ever heard the word justice, you know, when I was going through my medical training. Um, and so having the example, and like you said, Dieter, the illumination, you know, of these different personalities and the way they're illuminated by, and they illuminate their practices, clinicians, um, is also an incredibly valuable, um, an incredibly valuable experience. And I just think of of Dr. Berghardt, I've never even met her in person, but I just think of her and the joy that she brought to her practice. And I'm getting ready to head into a busy clinic day when we're done with this conversation. And knowing she's out there in the world just brings me tremendous joy and wants, and it's infectious. And so, um, so I think the idea of podcast as an infectious vector needs to be um, examined and investigated. <laughs> Thank you. And I guess that that's really an incredibly important and a powerful place to think about finishing because fundamentally the podcast has just been an honour for us to interact with some incredible people. Um, and actually, although this is a presentation about doing the podcast, the thing that's mattered far more is the fact that we've been able to interview and listen to some amazing, inspirational um, insightful and wise scholars, practitioners, um, and uh, people interacting within the space. And I think that, that we've been very lucky and privileged to be able to do that. And uh, fundamentally, the, the podcast series is about the people that we've interviewed, not ourselves as, as interviewers or creators. Yeah, and just as a final thought, I think, Ian, you mentioned the word wise. And I think, I think this space that we're trying to move in is I think Lauren, you gave a trigger warning, trigger warning for the word relevance. So I should probably do it for the word, the word wisdom, which sounds very old-fashioned. But I think you know, it's, it's not just about knowledge of what is justice or what theories of justice are there, but ultimately it's about how the wisdom of how do we act in a just way, or the wisdom of not just what is narrative, but how do we use it in particular kind of ways. And I think this is something that we've been trying to explore through conversations. I don't think it's really easy to sum up those kind of wisdom. So I imagine that, you know, people can have a listen to if they're they're intrigued. And, you know, conversations start, they end. And, you know, in the middle things happen that you don't always know that they were going to happen. Um, they go in certain directions. And it feels like uh, our conversation is about to to end. And I certainly very much enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode of Conversations About Arts, Humanities and Health. In our next episode, we're thrilled to be hosting Professor Paul Crawford from the University of Nottingham. 
Dieter and Ian will talk to Paul about his work as the world's first professor of health humanities. You'll also hear about Paul's recent campaign called What's Up With Everyone, a collaboration with the award-winning animation studio Aardman, famous for their beloved stop-motion animation characters like Wallace and Gromit and Shaun the Sheep. To stay up to date with news of Season 2, you can follow us on Twitter, at ConvoArtsHealth. This episode of Conversations About Arts, Humanities and Health was produced by me, David Brown. Until next time...